welcome to the Meeting the Moment podcast, a show featuring stories by Stanford students about how they're meeting big moments in their lives. All of the students featured are fellows in the Office of Religious and Spiritual Life at Stanford. I'm Adeswa Agmoyla. Stories have the power to teach us and heal us, guide us, and even inspire us to change. Stories engage the big, unanswered questions we all face. That's what you're going to hear on this podcast. Stories of people making meaning of big questions. Each episode of the show corresponds with a monthly theme, and each story recounts meaning made of a challenging moment. It's March 2021. Our theme is Reimagining Genius. And Emma Master, class of 2019, has a story about that. It's called People Who Are Alive. I was pretty invisible going into high school. Of all the characters I'd ever seen on the movie screen, Violet from The Incredibles was the one I most resonated with. The one who hides behind her hair and whose secret power is literally to disappear. I stayed away from attention, and attention stayed away from me. The one way I did stand out was by being the smart girl. The one with a top GPA who won academic accolades. But I was so shy that, besides my insular friend group, barely anyone had heard me speak. The AP boat they'd called us on a back-to-school rafting trip, a nod to our overabundance of advanced-level courses. I was smart enough, I guess, but I definitely wasn't a genius. That title was reserved for people like Eric Sassenach. Eric was a certifiable genius. Ask anyone. He took five APs, two more than the allowed maximum, and college-level math on the weekends at Columbia. This one time, I heard Eric fell asleep in history class. The teacher tried to embarrass him by calling on him for the next question, the date of some obscure European battle. Eric woke up, answered correctly, then fell back asleep, leaving everyone stunned and the teacher mortified. I wondered what it was like to have such mastery over your environment, for everything to be so easy. How it felt having to talk with normal people all day. What did geniuses even think about anyway? Eric was the latest in the all-male lineage of geniuses my school mythologized. Ivy League bound, infallible, and superhuman. We underclassmen especially idolized them. Smart without even trying, like they were floating above the rest of us who slept four to five hours a night just to break even. So I carried on silently traversing high school's river rapids in my trusty AP boat until one fateful round of Jeopardy. 
My school had a house system modeled after Harry Potter. I was in the underdog house, the only one that had never won a single house cup. In preparation for competitions, each house would gather for a special house homeroom. One morning, I found myself in one of these meetings in the biology lab, led by our faculty advisor, Bruno. Groggy from yet another night of not enough sleep, I heard Bruno announce a new tradition, house jeopardy. I leaned back against the cabinet of fetal pig specimens and continued studying my flashcards under the table. Our house was so accustomed to being bad, we had long ago given up any interest in house events. All of us except for Bruno, who perversely held on to hope with a sardonic layer of defense. All right, guys, go team. We need two signups before I'm letting you out of here. His tone was lightly threatening. Hell yeah, I love Jeopardy, I'm in. My head snapped up with a distinctive drawl. Confident and charming, loved by students, hated by teachers, feared by both. It was him. The most intimidating bad boy in school. The one I'd been crushing on since middle school. Jake Russo. Effortlessly confident in the way only teenage boys can be, Jake was also a kind of genius. The rebellious kind, with street smarts and perfectly timed jokes. The kind whose squandered potential teachers everywhere mourned. I couldn't believe he was even attending homeroom, let alone signing up for an event. School spirit wasn't really his thing. Taken aback, Bruno stuttered, Okay, great. We need a second. Silence. Both shock at Jake's engagement and just the usual house reticence. I stifled a yawn and kept studying, tilting my chair all the way back, one of the finer joys of high school existence, and moving my flashcards to my lap. Five minutes until my chem test. I fantasized about getting the periodic table tattooed on myself so I wouldn't have to endure this tedium. With no takers, Bruno went absolutely rogue. What about you? You're supposed to be smart, right? Me. He was talking to me. Dread began working its way from the base of my stomach all the way up and across my face. The oldest trick in the book had failed me. That if you look down and focus really intently, the teacher won't call on you. Ugh, ugh. I managed, my flashcards getting mushy with a sudden surge of hand sweat. Awesome, Emma Master will be our second. Now get out of here. Let's go, you and me, baby. Jake whooped, looking me straight in the eye. He gave me a huge high five and bounced away. Eventually, the big day rolled around. I reported to the auditorium, wearing my finest emerald crew neck, eyelashes curled. We were up against a couple of the mythological geniuses. I, the silent freshman. He, the class clown bad boy. We, who belonged to the losing house, 
underdogs across the board. But to everyone's surprise, including ours, we had a strong start. As I'd secretly contended all these years over angsty bouts of Avril Lavigne's complicated, we made a good team. A strong start steadily grew into a strong finish, and we found ourselves severely outpacing our competition. When the last question came, we agreed, go big or go home, and wagered a ton. What noble gas has 10 protons and an atomic mass of around 20? We looked at each other. Neon, right? Correct! We did it, we won. A Princeton-bound genius stormed out screaming, demanding a redo because we had to have been cheating. We demolished everyone so badly that teachers did investigate us for cheating. In the end, all clear. Our egregious upset victory propelled us not to date, sigh, but me to relative fame. The silent smart girl no one knew was now the silent genius girl everyone did. Suddenly I was met with, well, you should know, you're the genius. I found this all very disconcerting. Did memorizing random facts make me a genius? A voice inside me answered. It was faint, but its tone was certain. No. The more people labeled me a genius, the sharper the internal contrast was. And the more false I felt. I squirmed and tried to bat these ill-fitting labels away. As SAT scores and a college acceptance to Stanford rolled in, the super-saturated genius narrative congealed around me. And that internal voice was still there. It said, Something about this is wrong. In my freshman year of high school, a girl named Brooke had been having some issues adjusting. To help her fit in, Brooke's mom had invited one of the more popular girls in the grade, Maya, over for a sleepover. The next morning, Brooke's mom put a heartbreaking amount of effort into packing Maya a gourmet lunch to win her over. There were various snacks and amenities, but the main feature was an expensive boar's head ham sandwich on a fresh Italian roll. When lunchtime arrived, Maya loudly called the sandwich gross and went to make a show of throwing it out. I felt bad, so I ate the sandwich. I, all 90 pounds of me, stuffed the huge sandwich in my face. All Brooke had to know was that I really loved ham and I begged Maya for the sandwich. What Brooke didn't know wouldn't hurt her. In fact, it would make her feel a lot better. Not one, but two people vying for her food. Friendship. Dr. McGrath, our Latin teacher and father figure, stopped on his way out of the lunchroom to laugh at me. He carried on, and that was that. A few years later, I received this note from him at graduation. Emma, 
I can remember a thousand moments and stories about you. I can tell you how bright you are, how determined, how much fun. I prefer to remember the sandwich. The day I found you consuming the massive ham sandwich that Brooke's mom made for Maya. You did it so no hurt feelings would exist. That told me more about you than any test or paper. Believe this or not, somewhere out there is someone who is smarter than you. Somewhere there is a person more driven than you. Nowhere is there a better person than you. Dr. McGrath. This note floored me. I hadn't thought of the ham sandwich incident since the day it had happened. It really wasn't a big deal. Was Dr. McGrath's praise even true? Did I deserve those words? I realize now that Dr. McGrath had seen something in me I couldn't see for myself. His note validated what my inner voice had been trying to tell me all along. What was really special about me wasn't my academic achievement. It was my potential to be kind, compassionate, humane. In his work, the mythologist Michael Mead reimagines genius. He says it's something everyone has. The unique spirit that lives inside each of us and is open to being discovered and followed as we realize what our gifts are and learn how to offer them to the world. But we can't do it alone. We need mentors and teachers. Mead writes, the luck of our life is when we meet people who see the genius in us and try and help us recognize what we are already carrying. When I read Dr. McGrath's note, the voice inside had said something different. It sounded timid, honored, intrigued, moved to draw closer. I'm not sure if that's me quite yet, but I want it to be. At Stanford, I got out of the AP boat and swam against the current, working hard to develop a new, post-genius identity. I still made all my biggest decisions based on what I thought I should be doing, but I also found some places where my genius grew, pockets of unexpected oxygen for a nascent flame. Classes exploring mental health, storytelling, the human, the spiritual, and in my role as a resident assistant for a freshman dorm. I was still living largely dominated by fear and its hallmark, big justifying energy, but I kept listening for it, the voice inside me whispering, Yes, this thing, more. In the spring of my junior year, I had coffee with Marley, the admissions officer who had accepted me to Stanford. As we talked about my upcoming graduation, I dreaded the moment when I'd have to spit out a list of post-college plans with an air of fake certainty. But Marley was great. She told me that so many people she knew had prematurely committed to a path and stayed on it long after they realized it wasn't theirs. It was good I was still figuring things out. Then Marley began telling me about her friend, a guy who put on outrageous drunk Shakespeare plays in his house, complete with music and dancing. Now, these productions were not good by any means, but good theater wasn't the point. This dude got drunk and put on Shakespeare with his friends because he loved Shakespeare and loved having fun with his friends. That's it. 
and I never forgot what Marley said about him. He's alive. You can see it in his eyes. People want to be around people who are alive. The voice inside me said, I want that. This conversation was a game changer. I connected it to a book called Excellent Sheep by a former Yale professor named Bill Deresowitz. He writes that the very top students at the very best universities are merely sheep, excellent ones. They jump through all the hoops that admissions officers and parents set out for them. And they keep on living like that, working hard to jump through the next hoop without ever stopping to question what they're doing or why. This approach to life, of course, isn't sustainable. And these excellent sheep have a hard time later on, whether it's being spiritually eviscerated by a first-time failure or when they crash into a midlife crisis. They realize they've oriented their whole lives towards the next step until one day they find there is no next step. This was all very familiar. People absorbed in a high-achieving, perfectionist culture paralyzed by the possibility of failure and lacking the well-roundedness and shock absorbers that help us weather life's ups and downs. I was still immersed in the traditional culture of genius I'd known growing up. A genius was someone who always knew the right answer and hits all the external marks set out for them with ease. In this definition of genius, there was only one way of being exceptional. Excellent. That was all I knew, scared to speak up for fear of being wrong and unsure of how to do anything other than what was expected of me. I was an excellent sheep. But I didn't want to be. To change that, I did what I do best, make detailed, overly optimistic schedules. The objective? To morph from a sheep to a human. After graduating, I headed home for the summer to work part-time jobs and follow a psychotic, self-imposed, self-help regimen mocked by many. Some highlights. Six to seven a.m. Awaken. Meditate on death. Journal on intentions. 11 to 12 p.m. Work on life code. 6 to 7 p.m. Edification on a relevant topic. 7 to 8 p.m. Project of choice. It went on like that with every hour of the day accounted for. To accomplish my mission of becoming a person who was alive, I decided I needed something beyond academics. So I signed up for a summer art class. Early each Saturday morning, I drive to a rundown wing of classrooms at the local art center, walk to the end of the fumy slaughtered hall, take a hard left at the last door, and feel a rush of peace. <laughs> Thank you.
Initially, I'd been hoping for some technique, but the teacher just wandered around commenting on what in our pieces reminded her of her own. That worked for me. After a life of over-instruction, I was free to figure things out on my own. Sitting down at my easel, I would feel old anxiety start to rise. What should my next stroke be? How would I know what to do next? Shoulds flooded my mind. I grasped for external rules to impose on myself, but came up empty. Then, after floundering around for a bit, something would come to me from somewhere. My subconscious? The great beyond? My inner knowing? Who knows? Saturday mornings from 10 to 12 p.m. became a playground for learning how to trust my intuition. In this small, sacred space, I would turn inwards for the next step. This form of deep listening, this openness and receptivity was one way I got to know my genius. Learning to trust that voice inside me, following where the resonance led. But developing genius isn't a solo mission. My community played a part. It's thanks to them that I began to hear my inner voice in the first place. Dr. McGrath's note about the ham sandwich incident. Marley's story about drunk Shakespeare dude. These people guided me back to myself, reminding me who I was, who I could be, and what I have to offer. With my brush on the canvas, I'd wait and listen. And eventually, I could hear it. That little voice guiding me forward. This episode of the Meeting the Moment podcast was produced by Alessandra Wallner. Our music is by Lee Rosevere. The Meeting the Moment program and this podcast are hosted by the Office for Religious and Spiritual Life, or ORSL, in collaboration with the Stanford Storytelling Project and the LifeWorks Program for Integrative Learning. Meeting the Moment, which grows out of ORSL's Rathbun program, includes a student fellowship, a one-unit, community-focused, repeatable course, monthly public programs, and a growing list of curated resources for the Stanford community. Special thanks to Dean Tiffany Steinwert, Jonah Willinghans, Emma Master, and the LifeWorks Program for Integrative Learning. To learn more, Google Stanford Meeting the Moment. <laughs>